0: lectures, we have focused on some of the main themes that weave their way through the teaching of the Church Fathers. We have looked at the Trinitarian doctrine as developed by the Fathers, the different aspects of Christ's saving works, some of the key themes of theological anthropology, and finally a consideration of the Father's teaching on the sacraments all of these one name continuously keeps coming up and that of course is Saint Augustine. In this lecture I would like to look in more detail at the life, teachings, and gift that Saint Augustine is to our Catholic theology. All through the Middle Ages St. Augustine was known as Magister in the different ancient transcripts that have been passed down to us. So often one will see written the Magister, the Magister, and of course, referring always to St. Augustine. Even today in the world of scholarship, the number of doctoral theses being written on St. Augustine remains incredibly high, for he has truly left a great wealth of doctrine, a great wealth of wonderful insights written in a most exquisite way, truly the great teacher, not only for our Catholic tradition, but one of the great thinkers and writers of our Western culture. St. Augustine was born of a pagan father, Patricius, and a Christian mother, Monica, on the 13th of November in the year of our Lord 354 in North Africa. He received his early education in North Africa, and later he taught in his native city and then at Carthage, at Rome in the year 383-84, and then he moved on to Milan, where he was deeply attracted by the personality and preaching of the great Bishop there, St. Ambrose. While reading, in his own words, certain Platonic books, probably those of Plotinus, Augustine went through a spiritual revolution that changed his vision of reality. On the 25th of April, in the year 387, He was baptized by St. Ambrose. In 388, he returned to Africa and lived a retired semi-monastic life of study and prayer. But then he was called to the more active life when his bishop ordained him as a priest in the year 391. He became the Bishop of Hippo in 395. And it was there that he died on the 28th of August in the year 430, during a siege of the city by the Vandals. Until 399, Augustine found it necessary to combat Manichaeism, of which he tells us in his confessions, he had been an inherent in his earlier years. In 392, he had also begun his campaign against the Donatists, which involved him in debates about the unity and Catholicity of the Church and about sacramental practices. About the year 412, he began to devote his energy primarily to problems about grace raised by Pelagius and his followers. And in his last years, He had to defend his teaching on grace against a group of monks mainly from southeastern Gaul called Massalians. And only in the 16th century were these named the semi-Pelagians. Arianism had been relatively unknown in North Africa until the arrival of the Arian Goths about the year 418. At which time, Augustine also became involved in controversies with them. In theology, his outstanding work is his De Trinitate, on which he worked intermittently for 23 years between 399 and 422. His writing against the Donatists developed more fully his theology of the Church and the Sacraments. Although his doctrine of grace is already present in earlier writings, it is more clearly worked out in his debate with the Pelagians and with the Massilians. And to understand his theology, one must not neglect his numerous letters, sermons, and other shorter writings. His scriptural commentaries include the important 124 tracts on the Gospel of John and his Enneraciones on the Psalms. Augustine's Confessions now confessio means praise of God as well as revelation of one's personal failings and for Saint Augustine in his confessions praise of God is primary. And the Confessions are a masterpiece of all time, and of all cultures. In A City of God, written to defend Christians against those who blame them for the fall of Rome, is a vast study of God's providential guidance of history. His retractions review his earlier writings, and at times correct them, hence they should always be consulted. And this is another example of how, while the Church Fathers may take an inaccurate path at one time or about different aspects of the developing theology, it's always good to see them in the context of the whole. St. Augustine's influence, then, is unequaled, especially in medieval theology. If we examine the index of authors quoted by Peter Lombard in his sentences, a mid-12th century work, that became the textbook of theology for centuries, we find only a few references to Greek fathers, such as Origen, John Chrysostom, and John Damascene, somewhat more numerous references to the Latin fathers, such as Hilary, Ambrose, Jerome, Gregory the Great, Isidore of Seville and Bede, but references to St. Augustine outnumber all of these put together and by a great deal. This purely material consideration brings home Augustine's influence in one instance and other examples could be multiplied. The theological principles of Augustine became the very framework of theological investigations. Augustine's influence, as I noted before, is still alive. Beyond Bonaventure, Aquinas, Scotus, Ockham and their followers, Augustine influenced Luther and Calvin and much of the Protestant theology down to our present time. Modern personalism and existentialism also have their roots in St. Augustine. Now, it's obvious, of course, that Augustine did not drop like a meteor from the skies. He was helped and inspired by works of earlier theologians, such as St. Hilary, who wrote a wonderful treatise on the Trinity, St. Ambrose and others. Unfortunately, St. Augustine had only an elementary knowledge of Greek so that he could not read the Greek fathers in the original. He took and molded these previous materials and was the main channel through which earlier doctrinal developments reached the West. Now what can be said about his concept and method of theology? St. Augustine's theology must be seen within the broader and in some ways loftier context of wisdom, sapientiae. In 386 he was converted to the search for wisdom, which for him involved at first only knowledge of self and of God. According to scholars, Therefore, There are, for St. Augustine, three types of wisdom. The first we might call natural wisdom, that is, the rational basis or foundation from which one may proceed to higher wisdom. This natural wisdom embraces knowledge of God and of providence needed for those seeking faith. A second type of wisdom is theological wisdom. Wisdom of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. This is the wisdom possessed by baptized Christians who believe, hope, and love God and who are thereby united to God. This wisdom purifies and rectifies the ideas and orders one's life anew. And the third type of wisdom is contemplative or mystical wisdom. This wisdom is a resting in God and in divine truths, its fruition and peace, an anticipation as it were of eternal life, and this is for St. Augustine the fruit of the highest gifts of the Holy Spirit. And after his ordination in 391, St. Augustine became more concerned with active and knowledge of the temporal order required for pastoral activities. And so he became more involved with theological wisdom as distinguished from Contemplative or mystical wisdom. And this led him to further statements about the role and method of theological research under and within wisdom. The fruits of this thought are found especially in his De Doctrina Christiana and in his De Trinitate. The wisdom. Most operative in theology seems to be the second, the wisdom of the theological virtues. The first wisdom, that of natural reason, plays a part in a person's coming to the faith. But once faith opens the eyes of the soul, it heals, deepens, and enlarges the mind urging it to see some understanding of what it believes. And so, the famous dictum of St. Augustine, believe that you might understand, and understand that you might believe. Now, with regard to St. Augustine's theology of the Trinity, we have reviewed some of the major points of development that led up to the settling of the trinitarian question at the councils of Nicaea in 325 and the first council of Constantinople in 381. Saint Augustine then building on this solid framework developed the thought even further and while in general it is true that Western thinkers were less original than those in the East with regard to the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. An exception is found in the organization and systematization of the theology of the Trinity. For here the West was in advance. Hillary's great work which he wrote, actually, in the East when he was exiled in Asia Minor between 356 and 359. Hilary wrote a magnificent work on the Trinity in 12 books. And Augustine began his De Trinitate in 399 and worked on it over some time. But when the first 12 books were published without his knowledge and consent, he decided not to complete it. Urged on by his friends, however, he resumed the work and completed it in the year 422, in 15 books. So it is a work that preoccupied him for 23 years. Now remember, St. Augustine, as a bishop, was involved in many other things as well, but the fruit of 23 years of reflection, study, prayer, and writing. And there are three main steps in St. Augustine's approach to the mystery of the Trinity. First of all, deeply penetrated with Scripture, St. Augustine examines the various expressions about God, both those expressing distinctiveness within God and the oneness or unity of God as absolute being simple, indivisible, unchangeable, above all categories. Since this unity is identical with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are identical with it, though really distinct from each other, there is no tritheism, as if the three were like three of the same genus. Example, three men in a human nature. And since they are perfectly equal in this identity of being, there is absolutely no subordinationism for St. Augustine. From this identity of each of the three persons with the divine essence or substance, follow three conclusions. First, The so-called absolute perfections of God, that is, goodness, wisdom, eternity, omnipotence, are to be expressed in the singular, not as divided into three. Father is good, Son is good, Holy Spirit is good, yet there is only one goodness, one good. Secondly, the three persons act inseparably or in common. In the words of Saint Augustine, because there is one will belonging to the Father and the Son, their operation is also inseparable. And thirdly, nevertheless we may attribute to one divine person what belongs to or proceeds from all three persons acting together. Thus power is usually attributed to the Father, wisdom to the Son, and love to the Holy Spirit." So this first aspect of expressing distinctness within the oneness of God. And the second step in St. Augustine's approach to the mystery of the Trinity is the fact that despite their substantial or essential identity, the three are for St. Augustine really distinct from each other, and this by reason of their being really related to each other. You may recall that the doctrine of relation was first advanced by the Cappadocian Fathers in the East St. Augustine builds upon that doctrine and develops that doctrine, saying that each person is related to the person from whom he originates. Thus, the son is related as son to the father, and the father as father to the son. These mutual and opposite relations cannot be identical in the same person. A father cannot be his own son, nor a son his own father. Hence, each relation is really distinct from its mutually opposed relation. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and Son, and they are really distinct from the Holy Spirit. Saint Augustine is reluctant in fact to use the word person because for him it seems to connote an independent substance but he identifies person in God with relation and ends up by saying quote when we are asked three what human speech labors under a very great inadequacy still we say Three persons, not in order to say it, but in order not to remain silent. An important part of our Trinitarian understanding. The mystery of the Trinity, of course, is a divine reality. We as humans use our limited faculties to try and understand as much as we can. And so when we use words like person, nature, consubstantial, these are concepts that lead us in the right direction. Sometimes the analogy of an archer is used. The archer shooting his arrow toward the target. The target being the mystery of the Trinity, our arrows being the science of theology. Faith seeking understanding. St. Augustine directs us towards the end but like the archer unable to shoot his arrow totally to the target, so our human vocabulary, our human capacity for penetration of divine mystery always falls short. But what St. Augustine reminds us is that if To the extent that we embrace the teachings of the church and the articulation of the perennial theology of which he is such an important part, then we will not be in error. We don't claim to grasp the total reality of who God is in himself, but at least in some limited way we are in the right direction, awaiting for what fully will be revealed to us in the next life. So, three steps, the first two being that there is an absolute unity, even with the distinctness of the persons. And secondly, these three persons are really distinct from each other. And the third step in St. Augustine's approach to the Trinity has to do with the Holy Spirit the third person of the Most Holy Trinity who proceeds from the Father, but also as well from the Son. The Father and the Son are one single principle or source with respect to the Holy Spirit. Saint Augustine writes, the Son is born of the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father principally, and by his gift with no lapse of time commonly from both. According to the Greek fathers the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. Saint Augustine combines their viewpoint with his own. Again in his own words, for if whatever the Son has he has from the Father He certainly has it from the Father that the Holy Spirit should also proceed from him." A very original contribution to Trinitarian theology was St. Augustine's use of analogies, especially those drawn from the structure of the human soul. We might refer to them as psychological analogies. They are used to show that as there is a threeness in one, the one substance of man in a threefold aspect, faculties, actions, etc., so in God, in a much higher and unimaginable way, there is a unity of substance and a threefold aspect by way of relations. So using analogies from the human person of how certain faculties have three aspects and yet remain one single unified reality. Augustine uses these as a base then to make the analogy for the distinctness and yet unity in the blessed Trinity through the relations. And the basis for this analogical procedure in St. Augustine's is St. Augustine's reading of Genesis one twenty six, Let us make man in our own image. We have only time to indicate a few of these more important Trinitarian analogies as given by St. Augustine. In his De Trinitate, he deals at some length with the analogy of three elements in one love an analogy to be taken up by richard of saint victor in the 12th century saint augustine writes thus here are three things a lover what is loved and the love what does the soul love in one's friend except his soul and so there are three things there the lover and what is loved and the love In the 11th book of De Trinitate St Augustine considers sense perception in humans and finds a analogical trinity consisting of the thing seen the seeing by the imagination and the tending or willing focusing on the thing seen. And in the same book he considers internal sensation and finds a trinity of memory, internal seeing, and will, uniting the memory impression and the external image. So, these are examples of more external analogies or likenesses, and because they are external, they fail to satisfy St. Augustine. Hence, he moves to the internal faculties and acts of man. In the 15th book of De Trinitate, he summarizes what he has done in the earlier books. He notes that in Book 9, he was concerned with the trinity of mind, knowledge, and love. He repeats this trinity, and replacing love with desire. But these three are in man, but they are not man. And in this, the analogy or image falls short of God. And so he goes on and went deeper and came to what he calls a more evident trinity in the mind, namely in memory, understanding and will. It should be noted that in this case the object of each is the self, one's own mind. Now no one is more aware than St. Augustine himself of the differences between the images he has found in man and their reality in the Trinity. He constantly points out their limitations even while showing their value for obtaining some understanding of what is believed. And so again he uses this analogical method not with any thought to fully express the reality of the Trinity, but to help believers grasp in a more concrete way something of the mystery of how there could be three distinct persons but only one God in nature. Now what about Saint Augustine's doctrine on the Incarnation and Redemption? As noted earlier, in the West a proper balance had been established between the unity or oneness of person in Christ and the distinction of the divine and human nature in him through the writings of Tertullian Saint Hilary, and Saint Ambrose. Saint Augustine simply continued and is so often the case perfected their work and in this case did not add many original contributions. But because of his influence, remember he is the Magister, his statements of the theology of Christ were the most frequently quoted right through the Middle Ages. And Saint Augustine teaches that all three persons of the Trinity effected the union of the divine and human natures in the One Divine Person of the Son, but that only the Son is incarnate. Saint Augustine often uses the name Son of God to designate Christ as to his divinity and Son of Man to designate Christ as to his humanity. The Incarnation took place in the Virgin Mary by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. If John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh, it really means that the Word became man. St. Augustine says this, Here to be sure, we ought to take flesh to mean man. End of quote. Mary never ceased to be a virgin, whether in her conceiving or in her giving birth. St. Augustine notes that it is difficult for human reason to grasp this, yet faith understands it. In his sermons particularly, St. Augustine uses the communication of idioms that we have referred to earlier, or the sharing, or the interchange of properties. For example, in Sermon 124, he says, He did not leave the Father, yet he came to us. He suckled at the breast, yet he contained the world. He lay in the crib, yet he fed the angels." End of quote. In this connection, he will speak of God as dying on the cross or of the flesh of the word. And in speaking of Christ's saving work, which we have seen is one of the themes that weaves its way through all of the teachings of the Church Fathers. St. Augustine develops considerably the themes of Christ as mediator between God and human persons, of Christ as head of the body, which is his Church. St. Augustine, however, does not use the term mystical body in this context. This term came to be used of Christ in the Church only in the Middle Ages. For Saint Augustine the Church is the continuation of the Incarnation. And he viewed Christ in three stages. The first stage as the eternal Word of God who is in and with God the Father, the pre-existent Logos. The second stage, as the God-man through the Incarnation, the Word made flesh, the fundamental fact of human and cosmic history, the turning point, the very crown of God's creation the God-man through the Incarnation. And the third stage of the Incarnation as somehow the total Christ, totus Christus, an expression used very often in the thought of St. Augustine. Somehow the total Christ in the fullness of the Church that is head and body. And so we see St. Augustine as an important link to the medieval and modern development of the church as the mystical body of Christ. St. Augustine building upon the Pauline theology found in the letters to the Corinthians and other letters, building upon this and developing a rich understanding of the mystery of Christ The total Christ, the whole Christ, the mystic Christ, the fullness of the church, which is both head and body. And Saint Augustine reminds us that this total Christ is the eternal church in heaven. In Sermon 341, he proclaims, that church which is now a pilgrim is joined to that heavenly church where we shall have the angels as fellow citizens and there will come into being one church the city of the great king end of quote as perhaps you know saint augustine is often called the doctor of grace why Well. He brought together and really has articulated in a systematic way the Church's understanding and teaching on this important doctrine. The basic components of his theology of grace are as follows. First, grace is needed as a remedy for original sin. And we have seen how the understanding of original sin and its relationship to the descendants of Adam and Eve had been slowly developed and brought into consciousness through the patristic era. St. Augustine clearly teaches that grace is needed in remedy for original sin that has been passed down from our first parents. Secondly, Saint Augustine insists, God's grace precedes and accompanies human works on the way to salvation. And we will see in just a few moments the importance of his insistence that grace precedes and accompanies human works because the Pelagian heresy would deny the precedence of God's grace. Thirdly, Saint Augustine insists that grace heals fallen nature and leads to true liberty. Remember how important it was for the church fathers to stress free will and true liberty. And Augustine insists that true liberty is not contrary to free will, but rather is complementary and that true liberty without grace is not possible because then we would be slaves to our fallen nature. So there is a remedy for original sin in grace, but also a healing dimension of grace. And fourthly, the doctor of grace insists that grace is needed for final, perseverance that we remain weak members of the human family and that to persevere and to run the race to the finish line to grow in the theological virtues of faith hope and love grace is absolutely essential now Augustine does indeed develop these four themes abundantly, particularly in opposition to Pelagius and others who denied the importance or the primacy of God's grace with respect to human action. But, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that these four aspects that St. Augustine so properly, so correctly and were so needed of emphasis in his own time that these are only one aspect of a far richer doctrine of grace in St. Augustine. You recall when we spoke of the theme of grace under the heading of Theological Anthropology that the Church Fathers see grace as a participation in the graciousness of God the participation through adoption as sons and daughters in the very life of God. And Saint Augustine also in fact is in striking continuity with the Greek fathers as to these positive perfections that God's graciousness and love confer on the person when the person is born into Christ through baptism and the Holy Eucharist. Like the Greek fathers, Saint Augustine often speaks of the divinization of the human person by God through his grace, and also of God's adopting them as his children. As mentioned a short time ago, with St. Augustine's understanding of the Church as the totus Christus. St. Augustine, after St. Paul and St. John and to some extent Irenaeus, is the great exponent of the Church as the body of Christ. He is fond of the expression totus Christus, the whole Christ, to designate the Church. And St. Augustine teaches that the whole Christ is so much one that the Psalms may often be applied not only to Christ but also to we who are his members. For example, in his commentary on the Epistle of St. John, he uses the beautiful phrase, one Christ loving himself to express the results of this close union of Christ and Christians. He says, by loving one becomes himself a member, and through love he enters into the structure of the body of Christ, and there will be one Christ loving himself. For when the members love one another, the body loves itself. Another aspect of the doctrine of grace in Saint Augustine is his teaching about the missions or sendings of the Son and the Holy Spirit, resulting in their dwelling within the Christian. In a text that had a great influence on subsequent spirituality regarding contemplation and mystical experience. St. Augustine says that the Son and the Holy Spirit are sent to the Christians and so dwell in them when they are known and perceived. He writes, Therefore the word of God is sent by the Father whose word he is. He is sent by him from whom he is born. He sends who begot he is sent who is begotten, and he is then sent to anyone when he is known and perceived according to the capacity of the rational soul that is either progressing toward God or is already perfect in God." End of quote. And so, with so vigorous a notion of the positive effects of God's graciousness, St. Augustine was bound to reject the naturalism and exteriorism taught by Pelagius. This monk, who was perhaps of Irish extraction, lived in Rome from about 384 until the fall of Rome in the year 410. Then he fled to Africa, where St. Augustine soon became one of his strongest critics. About the year 411 or 412, St. Augustine published two works against Pelagius. In the meantime, Pelagius went to Palestine where he is said to have died. And a highly intelligent follower of Pelagius's views was Julius of Echolam and another was Celestius. And the charges against Pelagius and his followers were thus. They claimed that Adam would have died even if he had not sinned. That the sin of Adam injured himself alone and not the whole race. That newly born children are in the same condition as Adam was before his fall, through no personal sin. The whole human race does not die because of Adam's death or sin, nor will it rise again because of Christ's resurrection. And the law, as well as the gospel, offers entrance into heaven. And even before the coming of Christ, there were men holy without sin. Now, what was involved in the controversy was the power of unaided human nature and the relations between man's liberty and God's causality. Augustine undoubtedly had a special personal understanding of the problem, a special reason for asserting the role of grace in freeing man from sin and giving him true liberty, that is, his own life and his own experience, as described so poignantly in his Confessions. And so Augustine contrasts the initial state of man with his fallen condition after original sin, which has been transmitted to Adam's posterity. Adam had the power not to sin, but sin. Fallen man cannot not sin. His nature is wounded, at least with reference to his previous historical state, and he is limited by ignorance, his liberty curtailed, since he is drawn toward sin by concupiscence. Augustine sees the role of grace as breaking this slavery and thereby freeing man, and that on his own man would have eternally been held captive. For Saint Augustine, grace may be, as for Pelagius, external helps, such as preaching, exhortation, Providential events, etc., but that's only its start. The Holy Spirit must intervene interiorly to justify the sinner and to move him to do the good things he cannot do by his nature, by himself, without God's gracious aid. This grace for St. Augustine is always undeserved and not merited by man. Pelagius is held to have taught that man can begin or start off his work of salvation, that he can merit God's help and grace. Augustine holds that grace is not subject to merit, rather it precedes man's action. Just a few words finally on Saint Augustine's theology of the sacraments. One famous definition of sacramentum given by Augustine in connection with a discussion of Jewish sacrifices says that, quote, the visible sacrifice is the sacrament. That is a sacred sign of the invisible sacrifice and he defines sign as follows. Quote in the De Doctrina Christiana, a sign is a thing in addition to the appearance it imprints on our senses, of itself makes something else also come into our thoughts. And Saint Augustine points out that there are natural signs such as smoke being a natural sign of fire, Others are what he calls signa divinitatus data. They are contained in scripture and indicate to us by those who wrote the scriptures. And St. Augustine then, in showing how a sacrament comes into being, established a principle that's derived from baptismal practice, that the word comes to the element and the sacrament comes into being. And so the element is this material element or this natural sign such as water in baptism or bread and wine in the Eucharist. And the verbum, the word, this has been generally interpreted to mean the words or formula used by the minister. And so then we have come to our current understanding of the form and the matter that is essential To all of the sacraments. So, in our sacramental theology, in our understanding of grace, original sin, original justice, in the foundational dogmas of the Incarnation and the Trinity, Saint Augustine, being in a privileged place towards the end of the golden era of the Church Fathers, had the very great capacity to integrate what went before, to assimilate it into a whole, and to articulate it in a powerful way that continues to serve the church so well. We all owe a great debt of gratitude for St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, for his learning, but also for his holiness, for his witness of life, for he certainly lived what he proclaimed, he believed in what he lived, and he has handed down to us an invaluable inheritance of richness. We owe him, and indeed all of the Church Fathers, a great debt of gratitude, a great prayer of thanks, and we know that from his place in heaven He continues to guide this church, the totus Christus, the church he loved so much on earth, as we journey towards the fullness of the kingdom of God. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.